You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. People have any questions at the top of their heads that they have for either of our distinguished authors tonight? They should raise their Bob. Hi. Do you mean the last chapter or do you mean the epilogue? The epilogue. What was the motivation? For uh, what? Repeat the question. Well, a okay. For Rick. So. I've got this three-book series, Wake, Watch, and Wonder, 300,000 words, and he wants me to jump to the very last thousand of those 300,000 words, tell you all what it says, save you the bother of buying my three books, <laughs> and it. explain the ending. The, well, you know, I don't know what's the motivation. It was the first thing that I wrote. I wrote it before I'd written word one of Wake, of uh, any of it. I, that's, um, I'm a big believer that the difference between a novelist and a short story writer is that you're both going towards a destination and a novelist gets to take the scenic route and the short story writer has to go the shortest distance between two points and get there. And I wanted to know what my destination was. And it meant that I had to uh, figure out for me ultimately what the relationship between humanity and this emergent self-aware entity that erupted or bubbled up in the background of the World Wide Web was going to be. I had to crystallize for myself what the final relationship was going to be before I could start writing towards that development. I wrote it and I figured um, I wanted a certain poignancy as one does in these things. I like to think I hit that note at the end. Uh, but I also was responding and I'm speaking you know, without trying to spoil the book here for people uh, so I'll just say one more sentence, which is responding to the fact that there are not a lot of positive visions of humanity's relationship to artificial intelligence. In fact, most of them are negative, including the Asimovian one, which is let's all become uh, happy plantation owners and keep those slaves uh, always obeying our orders, never uh, harming us, and protecting our rights of property in them, which is what the three laws of robotics say. Uh, I wanted a positive but also, as I say, um, poignant note at the end. And I, I kind of think I hit it. And it was my guide for writing the whole trilogy. I, no spoilers. I, really I kill you. I kill you now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Well, it's interesting you should say that. Um, what did he so say? I, would, I can't tell you. I can't tell you. It spoiled my three books. It's like asking, so what no, happens what to— what did he say? Oh, he said the epilogue felt kind of tacked on. Oh, okay. So here, okay. Right. You ever see Planet of the Apes, 1968 film? Charlton Heston is talking to Morris Evans, who plays uh, Dr. Zayas. And Dr. Zayas says to him, when uh, Charlton Heston decides to go off, and what are you looking for? My destiny. He says, don't look for it, Taylor. You may not like what you find. Stop the film there. Don't watch that epilogue on that film, and you'll be a happy man. That's my advice to you. You don't have to read the damn epilogue. If it makes you happy up to, you know, 300, uh, 299,000 of the words make you happy, just stop and be a happy man. That's my advice. Uh, well, you can unread it. Pretend that it's a part of a Charles Strauss novel instead. Right. <laughs> Here's a guy who thinks the... The germ of a novel is tacked on. Okay. <laughs> I've got a question for Robert about the um, passage, the section you read uh, tonight. From Triggers. Yeah, it was a you know, fantastic, uh, very optimistic uh, vision and a, a, a beautiful story. Um, and it really reminded me of the sort of utopian notion people sometimes have about the Internet and communication technology. You know, we, we see each other, hear each other's stories. It brings us closer together. Um, and I'm wondering, are you, are you really that optimistic, I guess? <laughs> I am an optimistic writer. I'm a very optimistic writer. I think in part because that was an open job in the science fiction uh, field. 
there weren't a lot of people doing that. Um, as I said to Rick when he was interviewing me, maybe me and Kim Stanley Robinson are the two. I was uh, going to mention Stan. Yeah, yeah, Stan and I are these two guys who are left-wing uh, peaceniks uh, who love hard science and thinks it's actually a good thing for humanity, not a bad thing. And there are not a, lot, not a lot of other guys doing that. That's one reason to bring that voice to the table because science fiction as a literature is a dialogue amongst a variety of voices. You need a Joe Haldeman to counter a, uh, a Robert A. Heinlein. You need that dialogue. And I saw when I was reading science fiction that I was getting depressed reading science fiction. And then when I moved away from it and looked at reading science or meeting scientists and technicians and engineers, that I was feeling positive and there needed to be somebody putting that voice forward. So part of it is because I think it was something that needed to be done. But yes, fundamentally, I am an optimist. I am upbeat, uh, and I believe the world is a better place today than it was 25 years ago, uh, and it'll be a better place 25 years from now than it is today. I'd just like to interject to say that yeah. I find it very interesting <laughs> that we're using the word optimistic to discuss a passage in which the major feature is two people remembering lots of dead babies. Yes, that's true. That's, <laughs> that's true. true. But well, the optimism is that maybe war can that, – that something can be learned from this and we will finally yeah. study war no more. And the tone. I was just – And the tone, yes. Yeah. Uh, ask, ask, ask Rachel a question. I was What's gonna, your middle initial? V. Oh, damn, because this could be the RJS. Yeah. Whole, it's okay, so still close. the RS even. you got two R's up here. So um, that, uh, what's your – how do you insert I, – I, how do you see yourself in the field? In terms of like uh, dystopian, utopian, uh, do you come into the field as a um, – do you feel like you're correcting stuff that's already been done? Doing, uh, what's your position here, uh, your this orientation? Is the point at which I feel like I should say scared and new um, is my position in the field. But uh, I uh, see myself as primarily political writer. Um, I'm – uh, motivated a lot by social justice issues, uh, talking about uh, narratives, narrative interventions, um, talking about uh, populations particularly that are dispossessed from common narratives. That's not really the case in this story, which I wanted to write something. Well, it's the dead, me. the living. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, those dead, so disenfranchised. <laughs> but um, in some ways, it's a. I mean, it's certainly a lefty peacenik project. It may not be an optimistic one. <laughs> right, and and when uh, Rob was talking about. Um, always wanting to identify the target before you release the arrow of the story. Do you? Uh, it's different writing short stories, but how do you, do you know where you're going when you start a short story? Usually, or? yeah, almost always. Um, I was actually uh, at a. A lot of writers uh, believe that um, some writers have sort of a natural length. Um, that people write at a certain word count. And um, I was talking to Paolo Bacigalupi about this a couple of weeks ago, and I said I don't actually believe that necessarily. Um, because, um, as, as Robert's saying, um, if you're taking a, a scenic route or a short route to convey the same idea, I think that the ideas are often elastic if you can find the right um, treatment for them, that you can often tell the story in a very... Um, narrowed way or a wider way, um, depending on how you um, control your lens. And so um, I think uh, f for me, I, I, that's something else uh, that isn't related directly to your question, but that I was thinking about when Robert was speaking earlier. Cool. Uh, that's interesting about people having a writers having a length that they write. It, it's certainly true for me. I write at 3341 and um, 3,300 words, and um, and when you get to 3,341 words, then I know I'm done. <laughs> it's, uh, it's quite easy. All things being equal, it's better to be a writer who writes long than short in that on a per-word basis, you make more as a successful novelist than you do as a successful short story writer. Um, at, there was a time when you could make a living writing short stories, but that time is well over half a century gone in the There's past. one... People have heard this from me before. There's one short story writer in America right now that makes a good living. Do you know who it is? Alice Monroe? She's Canadian. She's Canadian. What, don't you guys know? This guy says to me, no. you're he was doing the interview. You're one of America's best science fiction writers. No, I'm not. No. Alice Monroe, one of the, she's Canadian. These are Canadians. We have Canadians. We write. We have, that's what we do. We have nothing else. We don't go make wars. We write. <laughs> Margaret Atwood is such a strong American feminist writer. <laughs> you're killing me. 
No, it's kind of it, it's a little off topic, but I, I totally agree with, right, with so what Rob is saying about. But we got short the, story writers. It used to be that they, you know, Bradbury would sell a story the Saturday Evening yes. Post for the money you could buy a Cadillac yes. for thirty five hundred dollars. You know, and now that's gone. And the Salinger was a huge literary genius who basically wrote short stories. Even in his, for, I mean, there's only yeah. one Harlan Ellison novel. But I would argue. Sell a short story for the money that you can buy a Cadillac for, but back at the time when Bradbury was writing. So, did I get the answer to your question, though? Who is the writer? <laughs> no, I, uh, but this is just a little hobby horror for a uh, man. There's, there's one person who has replaced like uh, Salinger and, and Shaw and, and people as a short story writer, but he doesn't call him that. David Sedaris. He doesn't oh, yeah, call yeah, himself true. a short that's story true. writer. But he is. He is, isn't you know? he? Absolutely is. And he is. makes a lot of money and yeah. he publishes beautiful short stories. Yes. But he's smart enough not to call them short stories. Chipmunks Seek Squirrel, You Will yeah, Be Engulfed yeah, yeah. in Flames, all these collections of his short works. Yeah. And they're, you know, but but you can't call them short yeah, stories. Right, right. If he called them short stories, they'd be in the literary magazines and not in the New Yorker. So anyway, um, other questions, comments? Um all right. I want to ask. Oh, there's one, Terry. Please. Um, so I think writing is kind of the magic of getting into other people's and other people's heads and writing that. And I'm wondering in what way it's possible to write that. So another way of saying that is developing poetry in this way. Well, Robert, you've got that link that lets you get into other people's heads, right? It helps a great deal. Yeah, absolutely. You order one. There's a post office box. You get it. <laughs> It's a, that's a really good question because, in fact, oh, what was the, the question, the question was writing you get into other people's heads, right? And and how what's how's that process work? And I made a few comments about Canadian writers here. We had a big fight in Canada in the Writers Union of Canada, which is like the national, uh, the Authors Guild down here, right? Uh, Not really, but well, but we, we had this thing. <laughs> well, but but it, we had this yeah. this big debate about whether or not people could appropriate voice in their writing. That is, as I as a white person, could I write the story of a person of color? Or could I write a woman's story? Or could I write a native Canadian story? Uh, or would that be appropriating their voice, stealing their voice uh, and making it my own? And the argument was, it was a wrong thing to do, was saying some faction was saying it was the wrong thing to do. But in fact, it is totally the right thing to do. The best thing you can do to try to understand somebody, that's the whole point of that scene I just read you, is walk a mile in their shoes. So for me, the most interesting characters to write are not the balding, the spectacled, middle-aged science fiction writers. Those guys are utterly banal and uninteresting to me. (laughs) The interesting characters are the 16-year-old blind math genius who has suddenly gotten sight for the first time, or the 87-year-old woman who has to face the fact that her husband is now 25 and she's stuck at being 87. People who are utterly unlike my own life experience, because if you're going to bring verisimilitude to that, the appearance of being real, you have to do your research. And for me, the research is often reading narrative nonfiction by people who have walked these in these shoes or talking to people who have lived these lives and trying to bring their voice, not the Robert J. Sawyer voice, but their voice onto the page. And it makes, I'm absolutely convinced it has made me a better person. I'm much more empathetic than I think I would have been otherwise. And I like to think by osmosis, my readers become better people because of that. The appropriation argument, at least academically, is somewhat more complicated than that. Um, I think it um, gets boiled down um, badly in writer circles sometimes. Uh, Appropriation is not supposed to be a default bad activity. And I know that it gets framed that way. And so then there's a lot about, like, how do you appropriate appropriately, right? But there's no appropriation (laughs) is, in fact, a bad word. It's one of these things where we don't have a good word for it. When was the last time your land was appropriated and you felt good about it? From an anthropological perspective, but um, uh, in any case, I mean, I think doing your research is one of the things that most people seem to have a perspective where, you know, um, they're happy to have people write about other perspectives as long as they do it well. And and one of the things I hear over and over again is do your research. So, you know, you seem to be making the The Americans I know would be happy. Well, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's insulting to say to any writer... 
you're going to do this badly, so you shouldn't do it at all. Whatever it is, right? You shouldn't write military science fiction because you'll do it badly. Oh, you shouldn't write so a locked badly. room detective story because you'll do it badly. You shouldn't write gay uh, erotica because you'll do it badly. Well, then why don't you read the work and judge whether it's been done badly or not rather than, uh, what do you call it here in the States in your free speech laws, prior restraint, rather than stopping it from being uttered? Let it be uttered and then let the debate begin. Um, I, my character development process, I would say, has a lot in common with method acting. Um, what? Oh, act. sort of a method acting, sort of a, a procession from gut emotion. I do obviously do a lot of research as well. Rena in the back. Well, first, first of all, Rob, sir, I think you call it asking forgiveness instead of forgiveness. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's right. But uh, I, I just want to say I, I agree with both of you. One, Rachel, with that it's absolutely necessary that you're going to appropriate, and I do think that's probably the wrong word as well, so that it's absolutely essential you do your research. But I agree with you that it's okay to write in those other voices, and the, the most striking example that comes to my mind is Peter Dougal's uh, novel, Hamilton. Now here you have a 65-year-old white Jewish man who puts himself absolutely beautifully and wonderfully in the mind and heart and soul of a 13-year-old nebbish teenager who's whisked off to England against her will because her mother marries an Englishman. Right. And it is a beautiful book, and you would never imagine that anybody who wasn't conversant or couldn't get into that child's or a girl's mind or know what was going on with an adolescent female could write that book and then you meet Peter and you're like, you? <laughs> you wrote that book? Really? So so it can definitely work. I think that the uh, field is rife with examples where it didn't. Like what? I can't what? imagine anyone but Octavia Butler writing it's a It's really hard to specify the like what when... You know, it's a generally small community. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> In other words, we know the bad examples. We're just not outing them. <laughs> um, I'll go ahead. Leah Cutter's a great writer, as far as I can tell, a great person. Her books on um, East Asian culture uh, are uh, reflect, I, I believe, a fundamental misunderstanding of what it's like to be part of a culture that is not our own. And I'll contrast her to another white writer who's working in East Asian culture is Kish Johnson. Um, And the example um, from those books that resonates with me um, and that I've talked about, like teaching and stuff like that, is um, there's a taboo against, uh, there are taboos in the East Asian cultures they're working with. Uh, One character has to deal with the taboo against uh, dishonoring her parents. And she just sort of walks around and goes, I should not dishonor my parents. Well, I guess as somebody who must follow the precepts of my culture that I will not dishonor my parents. The other character, wants to draw um, at an anatomy, and she's not allowed to touch dead things. So she has someone else pick up the bird for her so that she can still get around and do what she wants. And um, I think it's a difference between seeing um, the culture as an outsider and really imagining what it would be like to be inside that culture. And um, <coughs> the one uh, can be very damaging when it perpetuates stereotypes. Makes sense. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I think all, you know, for me, it's, it can get silly, the whole idea of, you know, but it comes out of a real situation when, like, uh, a black writer could never get published, or a woman couldn't get published unless she pretended she was a man. So you have this, uh, this very real context in which people in the process of working this out and thinking about it, of course, it's going to get silly at the edges and stuff but it comes out of uh, out of a a good attempt i think to uh to actually diversify literature and writing and sometimes people take it to extremes right there uh, this is greg uh, talking about having an idea where you're going at the end and where you're starting right uh how much do you experience that the works take on a life of their own and taking places you totally never expected you know, publishing schedules keep getting uh, more difficult to deal with. I just uh, recently turned in my 22nd novel, but about four months ago, I had to write the back cover copy for my 22nd novel, which Ace lets me do because I'm good at it. But they needed it for the catalog, and they needed it for a sales conference. I didn't finish the damn book, and I had to describe what the book was going to be. And now I have to say to my editor, 
now that she's read and she just accepted the manuscript yesterday, actually, well, you know, that cover copy you've got doesn't at all match the book you just read. Um, no matter how you conceptualize it up front, I think that any good writer is like a bloodhound. You know, it picks up a scent and follows it wherever that scent goes rather than saying, well, you know, treasure is supposed to be over here. Yeah, but there's something interesting happening over here. I'm going to go that way. And maybe I'll get over to where the treasure is eventually. Or maybe I'll give up on that treasure and find there's something else that's much more valuable. Uh, the farther you go in your publishing career, the less and less you need to hand in to secure a publishing contract. You reach the point where basically you're just saying, and a novel to be agreed upon later, and now it's time to do that novel. Okay, go ahead and write it, which is the ideal situation. Early in your career, they ask for sample chapters, which means you've done your first three chapters, not just as first draft, but polish the hell out of them because they're calling cards, and a complete outline of what you're going to do, which is so artificially and overly structured an approach to creating art that it actually is, I think, counterproductive the way novels are initially done. I much prefer to have just the epilogue, whether you, whether, you, know, you appreciate <laughs> that particular epilogue or not, knowing the destination and then wending my way towards it. And you have a vague sense, even if you're wandering around a strange city, as San Francisco is kind of to me, uh, that whether you're going the right way or you're going the wrong way and you make a course correction. But slavish devotion to an outline or a fixed notion of what it's going to be is always a mistake. On the other, other hand, if you're like, you know, Ron Moore and you're creating the new Battlestar Galactica, you really should have an answer of what all this shit means before you make four years of episodes for people to watch. Because he obviously didn't. There was nothing. He had no goal in mind. Angel. Angel, another example. <laughs> Please. How about to return to... Uh Foundation trilogy, yeah. Forever War. These are all fixed ups. Uh, yeah, totally. The Martian Chronicle. <laughs> I love those. I've not personally found a way for that to work for me. Um, uh, the plot fills the plot space for me right now. But I, I adore reading them. China Mountain Tongue is one of my favorite novels. Um, um, and I, uh, I, the fix-up refers specifically to short stories that have been published previously, right? That are then pulled out and then stitched together. But normally, sure, that's normal. Right. Yeah, I mean, because there are a lot of novels that, that ne didn't necessarily come into formation that way that, that still have kind of um, elements of that, like Nalo Hopkinson's Salt Roads, and um, those are some of my favorite books. Mm -hmm. So um, I think they're really cool. I haven't pulled it off. Absolutely true that something that's called a novel will sell many more copies. <laughs> right. Mike Resnick has this wonderful collection of uh, African-themed science fiction stories, and he collected them as Karen Yaga and right. asked me to blurb it. And I said, this is one of the great collections of the decade. And he sent the blurb back. He said, Rob, <laughs> it's not a collection. You're it's a novel. The, you're giving the game away. <laughs> you're giving the game away. That's right. You have to say it's one of the great novels of the decade. Because it, the, the audience for buying collections, single author collections, are the least well-selling form. Novels sell the best. Series novels sell the best. Standalone novels then after that. Anthologies, multi-author collections. Theme anthologies. And then single author collections are, the, yeah. are garbage. Nobody will buy them. Yeah, we all know that. <coughs> but also the, uh, the fix-up, I mean, 
as you discuss it, it, it really comes from an earlier. To me, it, it reflects an earlier time when science fiction was primarily a short fiction market. And guys would make them into fix-up novels so they could get the $2,500 from Doubleday or, um, or Ace, you know, and make it into a novel. And, um, you know, like you say, and, and there are uh, examples now uh, that there's a woman who wrote, uh, basically it's a fix-up of short story. I've forgotten her name. They're all, it's, it's mainstream stuff. It all takes place in Maine. Her name is something like Cunningham or Fitzgerald, one of those Irish names. <laughs> Anyway, I think it can work. But in terms of science fiction, it, it really reflects the Pony Express time, I think, sort of. The guy who's doing it a lot right now for, like, his last decade of his career, Alan Steele, whose Coyote novels are consistently just fix-ups of uh, novel novellas and novelettes that have been in Asimov's set on the planet Coyote. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Alan says for his uh, Coyote novels, he considers it sacrosanct. If it's been published in Asimov's, he won't change it when he incorporates it into the novel. Um, And kind of because he feels he owes you a free pass. If you've bought the book and you've already read this particular story, Stealing Alabama being the first Coyote story, you don't have to read it again. I haven't changed anything. You can trust me. Just jump to the next part of the book, which... I've just gone through the process of the novel I just finished. The first 25,000 words was a novella, which was a Hugo and Nebula finalist back in 2005. And I made all kinds of changes to set up what I was going to do in the next 75,000 that followed it. And I didn't, I didn't care about my readers having to reread it. I thought it was like a, you know, a fine symphony. It should be listened to a second time <laughs> with a variation now, a different conductor for the orchestra. Plus, you totally read the novella like 10 years ago, right? So you yes. don't remember it anyway. That's right, exactly. Yeah. I think most people, would, most readers would prefer that. They'd like to think that uh, things have evolved positively in the world through Mog, and they would like something new, current, better, and they read the other stories. I agree. No offense to Al. Maybe, but there's a, a tenet in modernism, not always obeyed, but that once it's published, you don't change it. You know, you don't have uh, Elliot going back and tinkering with... Uh, the wasteland doesn't have so it, it, there's a con- yeah. to me there's a there's a contradiction there you have to but we have the Raymond Carver stories who yeah he did so did Auden here in San Francisco this is an appropriate thing I just bought a book um, about Dashiell Hammett and the Maltese Falcon that has manuscript comparisons between the the black uh, mask serialized version and the ultimately published version. And there's not a, a page that doesn't have eight to 10 uh, <laughs> changes, sometimes quite significant changes that Hammett himself made when it came to be revised for being published as a novel. Yeah. When push comes to shove, I think writers do like that. They go back and look at something and they want to fix it up a little yeah. bit, even if they're not. <laughs> but I, I want to ask uh, Rachel a question about uh, this sort of, Valhalla of wannabe writers, which is Iowa. How was Iowa, what'd you learn at Iowa? What'd you learn at Clarion? How were they different? And what was, what was that like? There's, are they really like two different ways of looking at literature or not? Uh, I wouldn't say two totally different, but there are definitely different perspectives um, that are brought to it. Um, sometimes I talk to science fiction writers who will fight this, but the stuff that, in general, a science fiction reader will compromise on is different th- than the stuff that a literary um, reader, I'm sorry, did I say writer? I meant reader, will compromise on. So a science fiction reader, by and large, we're willing to go, okay, so the characterization's kind of crap and the language is, oh, but this idea is really cool. And um, we're kind of willing to hang in there with that. Um, I am, a lot of the time. And then on the literary side, uh, they are... Um, much more willing to compromise on like plot. They're like, oh, okay, so this is kind of boring, and um, there is nothing new here at all. But my, the language is gorgeous, and occasionally that works for me. Usually it doesn't. Um, but the different uh, concentrations um, lead to different focuses uh, when you're talking. So science fiction uh, workshops will concentrate on reader experience. Um, uh, one thing that I really wish that science fiction writers would bring over from lit 
discussions. Well, first of all, is a focus on language because language can be cool too. Um, but also uh, the idea that pacing isn't all fast. Like you don't have to have a series of larger explosions. Sometimes if you have not an explosion for a couple pages, it makes the next explosion bigger. And I think that that's something that a lot of science fiction writers obviously know to do because we have an, uh, a sense of pacing, but it doesn't get reflected in workshops. Uh, so for instance, uh, the most valuable advice I got at Iowa was um, Marilyn Robinson telling me to slow down rather than try to race through everything in as few words as possible. Hmm. That's a very interesting response. Yeah. And she does slow down. I have tried not to slow down to her speed. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Did you ever, did you, uh, I had two questions for you actually. One is we were talking about earlier with somebody else about conventions and stuff. Yes. Did, I know, did you ever do that before you were a writer? Were you a fan? I ran conventions before okay. I was a writer. Okay. I was involved in fandom, science fiction fandom. Started running, being involved in convention running in 1977. Okay. Uh, and I didn't make my first sale until uh, a few years later, 1980. Okay. So, yeah, I love so conventions. You were the real deal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I love science fiction conventions, the most interesting conversation, uh, you know, um, Lots and lots of fun. They're cheap entertainment. You know, even today, it's like 50 bucks for a whole weekend. Try to go to any other kind of conference that's, you know, not going to be hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a weekend's entertainment. It's fabulous. Love them. Okay. I don't so, think they necessarily do anything professionally for a writer, but they're a blast. It's like a, a, it's a movable feast. It's a permanent floating crap game. It's yeah. wonderful. So you came into the field through fandom in a way. Oh, yeah. I was yeah, a fan first, right. absolutely. And yourself. And organized fandom, yeah. Um, well, I wrote Star Trek fan fiction in high but, school. I figured that's how I got out. I figured that's how I got out my million <laughs> yeah. words of crap. Uh, but yeah, I mean, um, you know why they let you into Iowa? Because no. Captain Kirk was born in Riverside, <laughs> Iowa. So, which series is Captain Kirk in? They call it the original series. Fan oh, I'm fiction. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, Next Generation. Like, not too hard to guess. I guess with my age, but like, um, yeah. Uh, but I didn't really do any organized fan stuff. I didn't go to a con until after I went to Clarence. I didn't really know there were cons until after I went to Clarence. Cons! Um, I have a question. Cons. I, I brought you, we brought you to San Francisco to a con. It was a Star Trek con, Mom. Gates McFadden was the guest of honor. Um, <laughs> uh, I think it's at the end of one of the hominids books. Do you know you sort of take a, the bicameral mind as a... Um, I use that in Wake, Watch, and Wonder, Julian Jaynes. I mean, I use it in hominids, too. I've always been fascinated by it. See, and this is interesting to me because I have always kind of looked at that theory as being like, ha, no way, this is ridiculous. And I was just wondering, like, where you came to it as a scientifically minded oh, writer. Uh, I think it is the coolest idea that nobody can actually yet disprove because there's no evidence <laughs> that you can get a hold of for it. It's just such an effing cool idea. It's a big, exciting... Uh, Julian Jaynes wrote a book... Um, God, 30 odd years ago called The Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. And it became a bestseller. And his notion is the breakdown of the bicameral mind. You have two hemispheres. And what happened was that until fairly recent classical times, those two hemispheres operated independently as two separate consciousnesses housed within the skull. But one was dominant and heard voices from the other side that it did not recognize mm -hmm. as being its own interior monologue. And so everything from being inspired by God, hearing heavenly voices, having the voice of conscience as opposed to consciousness in your, in your ear, all of that was attributed to the fact that integration of the bicameral mind had not yet occurred. And he actually puts the dividing line between when Odyssey and Iliad were written. In Odyssey, he says in his reading, all the characters behave like mindless puppets. They do things without having any inner life to uh, justify why they're doing them. Right. And Iliad, people have reflection. They stop and say, I wonder why I'm doing this, or should I be doing that, or what, what should I do next? And that there's been a breakdown. There no longer is bicameralism. There's a unified consciousness, and every bit of except for schizophrenics and other people who have split brain cases and so forth, except for outliers, uh, the unified conscious experience has been the normal human condition, but only for a few thousand years. 
It's a I, fascinating I'm with Rob, book. it's a fascinating it's book. Okay. Uh, unbelievably right fun to read. Related to that, what is, is there any anatomical evidence of structural changes in the brain no, but all you have, because all we have is endocranial casts that show what the surface of the brain looked like. Mammalian brains fill the entire cranium, and so you can actually do almost reverse phrenology on what the brain looked like under sight. But what was going on at the level of the corpus callosum, which is the principal nerve uh, bundle connecting? There's nothing in skulls that preserves that, so who knows? So but related to that is a question that's puzzled me for a long time. Freud is usually, you know, cited as the inventor of the idea that there is an unconscious. Yes. And it's inconceivable to me that people weren't aware of the unconscious before Freud. <laughs> what really happened? Well, what Freud, I mean, that's an interesting point. Freud was the guy who sort of said, we are driven by unconscious forces that we don't control or recognize. I don't think he really was the first guy to give the notion that, hey, there are things going on that are below the level of conscious awareness in your brain. But he was the guy who said, you know what? You know why you hate this guy? It's because of some relationship with your mother that's beneath the level of your conscious recognition. Um, so he gave the unconscious forces the ability to actually influence behavior more than the conscious ones. I think that was his principal insight. And he's largely correct in that insight, too. So people weren't aware that Burned at the stake. <laughs> and uh, a good book for that is uh, just came out, Leonard Ludnock, called Subliminal, How Your Unconscious Mind Controls Your Conscious Behavior. And you can get a copy of Leonard Ludnock's book this weekend at SETICON in Santa Clara. <laughs> He'll be there. Well, I, I noticed when you, uh, uh, when you guys were talking earlier during the interview, you were talking about Pinker. Yes, Stephen Pinker. And, uh, Canadian Stephen Pinker. Just point that out from oh, Montreal. Well, he must not be worth talking about then. Yeah. We just changed the subject. Yeah. So it's all about Canada. Uh, no, but uh, what do you uh, – uh, I'm interested in some of your thoughts on consciousness because you do a lot on this. I do. The, I do. Um, I just finished reading um, uh, A.O. Wilson's new book, The um, – the, the, uh, what's he, what does he call it? The Social Conquest of Earth. Yes. You know, where, which is about – consciousness yes what's your thoughts on where it seems like one of the most interesting fields that's being developed it is the you know what what's the greatest thing about it and why so many of my books more than a half of my 20 odd novels have consciousness as their theme and the reason is it is the most multidisciplinary field it is not a field in and of itself i was lucky enough two years ago to give a keynote address at the toward a science of consciousness conference uh which is put on by the Center for Consciousness Studies at the University of Arizona, the Tucson Conference, it's called. Um, every couple, of, every, they do it every two years. And not this one, but the one before, I was one of the keynotes. And it's amazing because what you have is a colloquium of quantum physicists, neurobiologists, psychologists, philosophers, even the odd mystic and the occasional science fiction writer, all <laughs> coming in there, uh, computational theorists, artificial intelligence researchers, uh, child development specialists, all trying to bring their little pieces of the puzzle to why it is, the, the fundamental puzzle of modern consciousness is why is it like anything to be alive? Why is there an inner life? Why is there something to reflect on? Qualia. Why is there any of this? Why does it exist? And uh, to me, it is utterly fascinating. But I will say this, unless you are of a religious bent, which I do not discount your right to be that, then there's not, but if you, unless you take that position, there's nothing mystical about human consciousness. It is an emergent property of the complexity of our neural structure in our brains. Or if you take maybe a minority position, uh, Roger Penrose and Stuart Hameroff, an emergent property of the uh, fine structure of the microtubules of our brain instead of our neurons. But it doesn't matter. It's still an emergent property <laughs> of complex systems. It's sufficiently complex system. At some point, that system mm. will start to reflect upon itself. And that's what consciousness is, a completely natural but incredibly fascinating phenomenon. And yourself? 
Are you conscious? I, at the moment, yes. <laughs> well, that's, that's later tonight, probably not. Uh, Descartes' one great um, what is great contribution list was the cogito, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. It is the absolute proof that you have consciousness. I couldn't be thinking about whether I had consciousness unless I was conscious. That's what the cogito says. I think. Therefore, I exist. I am thinking it. I could not do this without thinking it through. So and what do you think of Dennett? You know, uh, he has a great book called Consciousness Explained, Explained. which some people refer to as Consciousness Explained Away. <laughs> uh, Daniel Dennett is a very interesting guy. Him and, say, um, uh, you know, Crick, uh, Francis Crick, uh, sorry, James Watson, excuse me, wrong DNA guy, James Watson, want to be so reductionist in what consciousness is right. to literally explain it away, to say, you know, you're almost delusional to right. think that you have... It's a narrative that, that you made up. It's a narrative that yeah. you've made... Well, the, yes, and there's multiple drafts and all of that, but it's it's a way of explaining consciousness that doesn't actually explain it. It still doesn't answer that fundamental question of why it is like something to be alive. This is something Wilson does in this new... And, yeah, and there's a guy named Andy Clark. Do you know his work? He's no. a Scottish... Uh, he says consciousness has a lot to do with the body. And oh, there's a lot I, of guys I used who to, believe embodiment yeah, as part yeah, of it. Yeah. And I used to uh, think that, you know, you talk, uh, Asimov's idea of a robot is a humanoid thing that right. walks around. And, of course, we have robots now, but they don't have arms and legs and feet. But what Andy Clark, basically, the idea he gave me that was if you wanted to have a really something that, uh, something that replicated human consciousness in a way, it would have to walk. Yes. You know, yes. instead of roll. Yes. <laughs> you know. And it was just an interesting way of looking at it, I thought. But it's, uh, it, I know it's something you deal with a whole lot. I love yeah. it. And part of the reason I love it is I did a minor in psych in the late 70s and early 80s. And guess what? In the entire minor that I did, they never once mentioned the word consciousness. There was no science of consciousness. And that's right. just as recently as 30 years ago. It's right. in because of things like fMRI. Uh, because we can actually see what's happening in a brain in a way we never could before, uh, we have a study of right. this that, that can be done in terms of the scientific method and not just a philosophical study where it's, you know, I argue this, well, I argue that. Well, do you want fries with that? Yes, I'm a philosopher. I, it's my job is to offer people fries. That's, you know, <laughs> we get beyond that. And you actually, really science. You know, argue against serving fries as writers. I mean, you know. Yes. <laughs> See, now you couldn't even have thought that thought if you were not embodied. The one point <laughs> is, of course, I, my, my thesis was that I knew that there was thought, but I did not know that it was mine. Mm hmm. That's heavy, dude. <laughs> <laughs> We're looking at a holograph of yes, Bob. Yes, that's right. It's not actually Bob. All right. Yes, please. Robert, uh, a while back I saw a Twitter conversation where you talked about you weren't going to write any more um, series of books. That's right. Oh, sure. I've done, um, I've just finished my 22nd novel, and I have nine novels that compose three trilogies, and the rest are standalones. And I have found, and my wife uh, has made clear to me, that it's excruciating for me to write trilogies. My attention span is not long enough uh, to get me through to the end. I hate, hate, hate doing the third volume of the trilogy. Um, and publishers push you to do ideally ongoing series because they're the simplest thing to get the sales force to sell. It's volume eight. Okay, I sold volume seven last year. All I have to do is go and sell volume eight. The hardest thing is every year you come in and say, okay, remember what you sold from Rob Sawyer last year? Forget that. It's completely different this year, and you got to go sell this instead. So publishers want you to do series. Well, I've reached a point in my life where I don't have to do it if I don't want to, and I'm not going to do it anymore. I like writing standalone novels. For me, the most interesting part is the months and sometimes years leading up to writing the first word, which is the research phase where I'm preparing what I'm going to write. I love doing the first book. And if there's one thing that's unusual – now. He doesn't like my epilogue, but there's one thing that's unusual about my trilogies. Uh, in my estimation and in the estimation of many reviewers, is the standard rule about a trilogy 
is that the middle book is the weakest. And I think in all three of my trilogies, the middle book is the strongest, which is something about how my mind works. They're always, almost always the weakest because they don't have a legitimate ending and they don't have a legitimate beginning. They're just kind of hung hammocked in between, you know, uh, the, the real beginning and the real end. Um, but I don't like doing them. Uh, my publisher will publish what I want to write, and so I'm not going to do them anymore. They just bug me. So what you're saying is your greatest accomplishment is to write trilogies in which the last book is the weakest. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and, and there we have it. <laughs> and you see, what I would suggest is just read my middle books, forget the other two, just like forgetting the epilogue. <laughs> Make up your own. You are kind, sir. Thank you. Thank you. I have another question. I get, you know, it's funny. I mean, I get lots of letters about the epilogue. There's no question. But I get at least as many people who love the epilogue as dislike the epilogue. And you know what? I got to just say, the final thing is, when you're, and we're getting near the end of this, I'm sure, too, is whatever note you leave people on at the end is the note that resonates when they go. If it's a movie, it's a symphony, it's a book, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, the nine billion names of God, if you stop before the last line, it's a completely banal story. It's the last line, and that's all anybody remembers. You choose, <laughs> I think we all, three of us would agree, you choose with great effort the last line of your story. Everybody says in writer's workshops, the first line is the more important, most important thing because it determines whether they're going to read it at all. Well, that's true. But any number of basically fungible first lines will serve. Um, but the last line, is what's going to echo in their heads when they close the book. And that, you you sweat blood on that to get to what that point is you want to have left. And if some people say, oh, I wish that wasn't the point, that's perfectly fine. Uh, my you know classic example is the, the film Casablanca. No need for a spoiler there, but there are obviously two possible endings. And there's one that everybody remembers, even though it's the one where it breaks the standard formula a film of that era where the boy should get the girl. He doesn't get the girl. Instead, he gets the weird French lieutenant to go with him. <laughs> Maybe that explains its enduring popularity. But it's, um, if you made the other choice, other people would people have said, yeah, great, he finally got the girl, he deserved the girl. Ah, they're back together again, life is good, love conquers all, perfectly good moral of that story, and it would have been a forgotten story at this point. You know what's weird is we were talking the other day with, uh, a um, couple other writers, and um, a lot of us had written versions of the Nine Billion Names of God. I yes. wrote one myself. Yes. Uh, Greg Benford wrote one. Carter Schultz wrote, mm -hmm. wrote one. And we were actually, it was kind of a joke thing to put it in an anthology of stories taking off on that. The one thing they all had in common was they all had the last line. It's an you could, There's a million story. ways to get to yeah. it. But, but once yeah. you, that's where you got to go. Yeah, that's and right. It's kind of interesting. Now, at, and this is a, a jealous genre writer again to somebody who, who got into Iowa. Uh, yeah. Was it, uh, did, what was, did they do mostly short stories or novels? Or did people distinguish there? Uh, the workshop format is better suited, I think, uh, to short stories, uh, which has been credited with one of the reasons why a lot of people are writing them at the moment, um, despite the fact that they're short. You might as well ask, uh, do you want fries with that? Um, uh, but um, there were some attempts to workshop novels. Um, I think uh, I was kind of convinced you couldn't do it in a workshop format, looking at partials of novels uh, until. I went to Rio Hondo, which is a writing uh, retreat run by Walter John Williams uh, last week. And um, there are, p uh, he and Daniel Abraham and several other people have really created a knockout way of critiquing this stuff. What's I can't replicate it. What's the knockout way? Um, I, it's a really, uh, as far as I can tell, intensely structural look at um, the way that novels work, uh, which allows them, I, if I could replicate it, I would. <laughs> How do novels work? I never figured it out myself. Uh, well, a lot of um, my structural background in terms of, and I, I tend to think of myself as somebody who critiques based on structure, which is uh, not the norm either in um, science fiction or literary critique circles, uh, is based on the fact that I uh, did some playwriting. And there are some very clear ideas in playwriting, as in screenwriting, um, about how structures are developed and supported. Um, so if people are interested, I would recommend, um, as a basic text, uh, the book by Stuart Spencer, um, S-T-U-A-R-T, uh, which the name is um, 
not on my mind right now, but he was my playwriting teacher in college. And he's got a lot of the elements of how he looks at structure as a dramaturg and a playwright. So you're not going to tell us. You're going to tell us to read his book. He's better at it than I am. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I often thought, I mean, I think every novelist and every writer in terms of, uh, I think of myself, a, a lot of times that writing is play, is theater in a sense, because you have to know where everybody is. Yes. You have to know what they're doing with their hands. Yes. You have to know, you know, it's like, um, there's a certain amount of that in, in all of it. It's like stage, stage management, right? Um. I think that the emphasis in theater uh, has been on, on how do you keep audience attention uh, because there's so much more immediate feedback, um, which may be one reason why there's an emphasis on structure. Um, I mean, certainly uh, when we're talking about stage business, that's something you have to think about in between dialogue lines, but uh, you know, we do a lot of fudging and so do they. Uh, background characters can say peas and carrots on stage and our background characters can just be mentioned in a blur and then ignored. Um, but in your story, I, you always had a picture of where everybody was in the place. I felt that that was very conscious on your part. I tried to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just, and not that that was anything exceptional. I think that's sort of how it sure, sure. works. Oh, yeah, right? you got to block yeah. the scene. Whether yeah, you do it on paper or just try and keep yeah. it in your head, yeah, but you've got to block the scene. It seems to me that your scene was blocked. And getting back to the method acting, um, a lot of uh, human emotion is conveyed through body language. And so if you right. know anything about acting in particular, you can sort of figure out how characters might be behaving. And you don't have to explain it all, right? You hope. Right. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> right, cool. We have two accomplished writers here. I'm looking for more questions. Um, I have lots of questions for these guys, but... Please. A, a quick follow-up question for Rachel on the on the scene of your story. I thought it was a really cool juxtaposition of the, the ghost and the donut shop. And, and I don't know if you can talk a little bit about, uh, you know, did, did the story start in your mind with, the, with this all 24-hour donut shop and thinking about what might happen there? I usually have much more profound things to say about the ideas of my stories. There's really nothing profound to say about this. I was writing a bunch of 300-word flash stories, and I had heard that there was Voodoo Donut Shop in Portland that was a 24-hour donut shop in Wedding Chapel, and I went, what the hell? That's got to be the best setting for a story ever. Um, and then I started writing, and it became sarcastic. As often happens, if I don't have a plan in mind, I tend to get sarcastic. Um, so really nothing profound to say about that. But um, I guess part of me getting sarcastic or what I would find funny about that is juxtaposing things that don't go together. All right, I have a question for Rob about um, sort of hominid science. I know you've done a lot of work with Neanderthals. Mm -hmm. What do you think of this recent thing about maybe, maybe the cave art wasn't entirely Cro-Magnon? I'm sure you read that. Yeah, I sure read that. Yes, that. that's right. Think? That's right. Because historically, the view has been that there was no symbolic thinking on the part of Neanderthals, so they did not do art, and certainly not representational art. Um, and now, because of some new dating of some cave paintings that suggest they may be significantly older than previously thought, that perhaps Neanderthals could have been the guys who painted them. It's a great way to get a headline, but it's like bicameralism. You can't, there's nothing that indicates <laughs> that it was a Neanderthal that did it. You haven't found Neanderthal DNA in a right. red-brown pigment where they've right. used their own blood. Just you know, that would, be, that would be, yeah, it's the timing. The and then, you know, we also do keep redefining these ages, right? This is the age at the moment and the age we think Neanderthals were prevalent as opposed to uh, moderns. Um, obviously, they're contemporaneous across the globe, but in different locales. They, one was here and one was there at any given moment. Um, I don't know. I think it was one of those things that if you put it out there, you get international coverage for your research, but it's way speculative. Yeah. yeah it's and so my gut feeling is no. My gut feeling is no. There's this real desire right now, and I love Neanderthals more than just about anybody. I mean, I got my fucking Hugo for writing about Neanderthals. Uh, but the uh, there's nobody who likes them more than I do, but what's interesting about them is that they're different not that they're the same, that they had cognitively different brains than we had. 
And there's this desire to want to say every time we turn around, oh, no, they're just like us. In fact, they inter we interbred with them, and they're, they're really just us, and now their behaviors are just like us. And then the only difference is that, you know, they had a bad press agent. And I think <laughs> there's way more difference. There's a fundamentally very different uh, brain structure when you look at the layout of a Neanderthal brain just from the endocast, from what fit inside the skull there. Yeah, did you read the the Dance of the Tiger of Jordan Curtin? I did not. The Norwegian, well he did a, it was just, a, it was a sort of a storyboard of his um, theory about Neanderthals. Mm -hmm. it, nothing new in it, I just wanted to. I'll check it out. Familiar with that one. It's not a very good novel, but his whole thing I think was that they couldn't map things, mm -hmm. you know, so they couldn't draw. Right, right. And if you can't draw, you can't make a map. Yes. And that was, you know, you're always looking for the the little thing that... Right. It, you're always looking for the one explanation for right. why, the big yeah. question, why yeah. we're here and they're not. Yeah. For sure. But it's a kind of interesting book. He also, there. there's a theory that they 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 had a less developed uh, larynx, so they... Yeah, Philip Lieberman at Brown is the guy who did the uh, reconstructions of Neanderthal larynxes and suggested that they had a smaller set of phonemes that they yeah. could produce. But Hawaiian has a smaller set of phonemes than a lot of other languages, and so what? There's, you, you know, you, your sentences may be longer. I live in Canada, as you well know by my comments this evening, where all the signage has to be bilingual. And if you look, you will see that the French signage tends to run about 50% longer than the English <laughs> signage to say the exact same thought. So what? I mean, if they could only make, you know, as long as you can make two sounds, you can do binary. And anything <laughs> beyond that is, is uh, you know, gravy for language. It's interesting that you say um, <clears throat> the research uh, feels like it has an agenda driving it to you because um, uh, it tries to make the abilities between the two um, species more similar. Uh, coming... Um, Looking at it uh, from the place where I was uh, studying psychology and anthropology in college, there's such a rigid attempt to separate um, human consciousness from any other consciousness at all um, that I, I tend to look at it, you know, like um, whenever, when people say, well, there's no way that Neanderthals did symbolic art, uh, or we don't know which one did it, so we'll just assume it was us and could not possibly have sure, been them. Sure. That that comes across to me as being more like, well, the difference between animals and humans is right. that animals no, can't no, no. use language, and I know that's not no, not your at all. Position. And in yeah. fact, your recapitulation of what I said wasn't what I'd said, but the fact is that Neanderthals should have. It would be like saying to a bunch of Native Americans, oh, you're just like Europeans. No, 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 I'm you're sorry. You're just like Europeans. I didn't you mean should, that you, you know, had no, said. But, but it would be like saying that, right? right? Instead of saying, let's look at these guys and take them on their own terms. They were around longer than we were. They've survived longer than we did. They came in 200,000 years ago. We came in 100,000. They survived to 27,000 years ago. So they've done about 75,000 years longer as a human species than we survived. And... It's worth looking at them and saying, what's different about you? You were here first, you were stronger, you had bigger brains, but they were differently arranged. And let's respect who you are instead of keep trying to say, ah, you're just another white guy, that's okay. No, no, no. I, I wasn't saying that you No, were I don't mean you. I don't mean you yeah, or yeah. you were here. Okay, I, the sorry. pronouns are failing us here. All right. I mean, but the <laughs> desire right now is also agenda-driven to be right. inclusive. Um, you know, when I did my Neanderthal series, that basically, you know, we, we are equally distantly related, as I'm sure you know, to common chimpanzees and to bonomos. We have exactly the same genetic divergence from those two. And they're very, very different animals. Right. And it would be like coming along and saying, oh, you know all that stuff you heard about bonobos being the peace-loving primates and, and solving things sexually and having uh, matriarchal societies? Nah, they're just chimps that are a little bit on the scrawny side. That's what we're trying to do to Neanderthals totally right now. People totally do say. Um, there are some people but, uh, who totally say that, and they are yes. wrong. That was one thing it. that I really liked about um, your hominids Thank series, you. which I read while I was doing anthropology and was was lovely, is well, cool. um, even though it sounds uh, like you're taking some stuff from sociobiologists, um, you weren't playing into any of those stereotypes of we're related to chimps, therefore are, we are identical to chimps. And the, well, we the are. Neanderthals, we can't possibly be. Yeah. Right, but the Neanderthals had sort of a, a balance as well as their own traits of traits that we see in, in related primates to right. us. And I, and I did appreciate that a lot. Thumbs up. They're okay. escaping. 
fairly well. Woohoo! We all Dude. we all actually have to. We'll take a couple more questions or comments people have. Otherwise, we'll let Rena close it up and go put all these kids that we've saved to bed. Um, thank you for thank you to two distinguished and interesting authors, and thank you to our audience tonight. Oh yeah, thank you guys. What great questions! Yeah. And Terry, thank Thanks you to Terry coming. Bisson. Thanks for coming, guys. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.